Hey, my name is Sherry Dunn and welcome to The Balm. There is a balm in Galilee to make the wounded whole. There's power enough in heaven to cure a sin-sick soul. At The Balm, we believe that one of the ways we can get to racial reconciliation is through conversation. As James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Welcome to The Balm. Today, we're joined by Jill Chow. Jill is the Vice President of Communications and Outreach for ACDI, VOCA. It's a global development organization based in Washington, D.C. It focuses on ensuring that people around the world are empowered to make positive, lasting changes in their lives. Jill is a creative, adaptive leader who has led communications and organizational effectiveness efforts across a variety of industries for more than 30 years. Jill holds a BA in communications from Purdue University and an MA in public relations from Ball State University, as well as a certificate in organizational development from the NTL Institute. Welcome, Jill. Thank you, Sherry. I'm so honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am so excited to chat with you today. Um, The Balm is a podcast that's really devoted to trying to figure out how we can have uh, healing conversations around race, how we can really dig deeper and get to some of the issues that seem to vex us perennially. And um, you you recently wrote an article for LinkedIn called Whitewashing Feedback. Are you a perpetrator? And the article, um, I don't want to, I'm going to let you describe it in, in just a minute, but for me, the article was really, really important because it's something that has bothered me for years. And yet it seems like no one discusses this gap in experience between frequently what white managers and white women as managers are telling people of color, black women of color to do in situations where race is indicated, but the person, generally the white person, does not see how race is indicated. Do you want to tell everybody a little bit about the article, Whitewashing Feedback, and why you decided to write it? Sure. So um, I wrote it based on an experience, or or several actually, that I had at at a workplace several years ago, um, where I had an extremely diverse team, really fairly large team um, that I was managing. And one of my team members was brave enough to actually speak up and tell me that some of the feedback that I gave her was actually um, something that she said black and brown people hear a lot. Um, And that really struck me because I thought, oh my gosh, what, what am I doing? You know, what kind of bias is within me that I can be giving feedback that's not constructive to this person? And it really led to a lot of soul searching on my end and starting to think, why am I giving the kind of feedback that I'm giving to everybody? Basically, this is the kind of feedback that I would give to all of my staff. And how is it going to land with them depending on where they're coming from, their their experience. Um, and then I started examining power structures in the organization, um, issues of safety that, you know, people of color had spoken about in that organization, but I had no, you know, not having that experience, it just kind of went right past me because that's isn't that great about white privilege? Not really, but it's mm-hmm. what happens. You know, it's, it's what happens. So in this particular situation, I was really um, forced to take a good hard look at myself and realized that I was giving feedback to people that were really keeping them from, first of all, being sa- feeling safe to share 
their own experience and their own voice in their own authentic way, but also help making them feel like they could not bring their whole selves to work because they were not feeling valued and seen and were really feeling threatened by the organization. And, and I felt like it was my responsibility as a manager in that area to learn um, and to do better in terms of the kinds of feedback I was giving my employees. You know, one article, one example in the article was, uh, I believe, is a black woman who had a white male manager who was avoiding her, being dismissive of her, and in you know, you were trying to help. So, as you say, you gave her feedback that you would have given anyone, and that feedback really didn't get at the issues that she needed. Is that right? <laughs> That Yeah, correct. So basically what I did is I looked back in my career um, as a young person and thought, you know, I had these situations as well where I was feeling dismissed um, by white managers. And I thought, well, what did I do? Well, I went in and talk to them about it from a place of humility. Oh, I'm, I don't know the, you know, I'm, I think I want us to work better together. How can we do that? And I recommended that she do that. Um, and I, and I didn't realize at the time how threatening that would be for her. And I was very, you know, I was really kind of frustrated. I'm like, why is she not, you know, going to talk to him? But, you know, he, he was a very intimidating person. First of all, he had a lot of sway in the organization. He had like the ear of um, the chief officer of that division. Um, and it was very much a, a threatening situation for her to even put herself out there and put herself in front of him. And when I thought about it, you know, when he told me, because I confronted him originally about it, I said, I, I, you know, I understand that you are trying to get something done from my team, but you're working around the person who's assigned this project and what's the problem. And he said, well, I find her very difficult to work with. I don't think she gets it. Um, and instead of hearing that for what it was, mm -hmm. I heard it as a fault on her part and, you know, and thought, well, boy, I really need to work with her on, you know, being more approachable quote unquote, you know, and, and mm -hmm. that wasn't, that wasn't the issue at all. In, in fact, this particular gentleman had issues with every single person of color on my team. Right. So, and that's, that's the dynamic you talk about in the article. And that's the dynamic, I think, uh, black people in general, but black women in particular, uh, in the workplace really find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place because current management techniques and management procedures and process don't factor race in, you know, very much. They don't fact the way they don't factor gender in quite frankly, but they definitely don't factor race in. So many of the technique techniques at our disposal assume that you are talking about two white people, generally two white men, and the other thing is that um, you mentioned really is really uh, important is that the natural instinct then is to blame the person of color and it's they're the ones who need more coaching. But is that really the case? Exactly. And in this case, absolutely not. Um, you know, in this case, I... I took it upon myself, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I did the learning I did. It didn't benefit that situation, but I have reached out um, to her and took responsibility for my part of that situation and for the fact that she eventually did leave the organization um, as a result of a lot of dynamics around that and probably in particular, partially my leadership, but my poor leadership in that area. And it, it, it was a real blow to the organization because she brilliant 
brilliant young woman, and I'm glad that she was able to take her talent somewhere that appreciated her. Um, but I would absolutely do that completely differently now. And in fact, in the organization I'm working in um, right now, I don't have any staff of color, which really struck me as being strange because I come in the DC area, you almost always have a diverse staff. And, you know, with my staff now being completely all white women, um, essentially, I just, I just I've got an Asian American woman on my team, but, you know, I'm, I'm now hungry for that perspective because in uh, an area like communications, it's important for us to represent all perspectives. And now that I've kind of seen the fact that we're, we've been silencing people's voices, I want those voices now. And I try and draw them out um, across the organization as much as I can. But I do notice that people are super hesitant um, mm-hmm. to really be themselves and to put themselves out there um, and to trust that I'm coming from a place of, that I'm genuinely interested in what they have to say and not, and I'm not going to, um, you know, clap back at them for, for actually telling me the truth. So, yeah, you, you know, you have this quote in your article, it says, um, consider the cost to our workplaces and our country. Think of all we are losing out on the creativity, the problem solving, the many skills and talents that are being wasted or being stifled. That's, that's a very powerful quote. What, what made you at this point in time decide to write this article? Um, I have actually been participating in a mastermind discussion group around race and how we, um, as just individuals, can, in our own selves, in our own communities, in our own um, families, start to move the needle in terms of um, having these discussions. And as a result of that discussion group, I started thinking more and more about these experiences that I'd had. And I thought, well, it doesn't do me any good to sit on them. I mean, it's been good that I've had learning from it. But if I can share this information um, and maybe strike a nerve with somebody else, strike up a conversation, happy to do that. I'm glad that you reached out and that we're having this conversation um, because that's really the goal. It's like if I can put my own, you know, moments of awkward and, Mm -hmm. you know, clueless whiteness essentially out there for other people, maybe I can help somebody else. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it really takes that mind shift. And it's almost like, um, for those who remember the movie, The Usual Suspects, it's like going back in time and being like, wait a minute, I am Kaiser Soze. <laughs> you know, I am the actor in many of these things. And, and that's hard for people to kind of, uh, wrap around themselves emotionally. People tend to like to say, no, that's not me. That's other people. Um, the other kind of interesting dynamic is the dynamic as women. This is something that I'm always kind of poking at because a lot of times I have noticed in the workplace when issues come up, women, white women are totally comfortable when you're talking about it from a female perspective, you know, male bosses, how they're dominating, how they're not listening. But as soon as you as a black woman overlay race, you get, you know, big eyes and a blank stare and the conversation is shut down. Uh, yes, I've, I've noticed that as well. We, we actually have just started doing some um, diversity and equity um, consultation at our organization. We brought in a group to come help us do that. And I, I've noticed that around the table as we've had, you know, started to have these conversations. And I think um, I'm not sure, you know, in my own life, I have to look way back, but I'm I, I was one of those people. I, you know, I had the big, like, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. We're all just women. And, you know, and, but it's a matter of educating yourself and figuring out that, yes, 
we are women, but we are also women of different races who come from different experiences across history um, and who have, you know, as white women, we have been somewhat protected, even though we have also been marginalized by the mm-hmm. patriarchy. But we have been, we basically, you know, I agree with Glennon Doyle to an extent, we've sold our souls in order to be protected um, by the patriarchy. And therefore, we can't really relate to the experiences of other people and have a hard time opening up and being empathetic enough to take that experience in because it doesn't belong to any sphere that we understand. And our typical reaction is to get defensive. Yeah, it's a du- it's a duality, right? There's mm-hmm. I call it the duality that there's the role of the oppressed and the oppressor in one space, right? Yes, right. There's there's no argument that white women have been oppressed by patriarchy from the jump in the United States. There's no argument there, and yet have had benefit of access to white privilege and white supremacy, and have executed and been a part of the implementation of policies that have um, been harmful to women of color, black women, Asian, Hispanic, other women. Like there's, you know. It's it's reconciling those two identities is hard to reconcile. It is. And it's, you know, are we and especially when we're talking about women and equality, it makes to me it's it's tough because it's like, are we women? (laughs) If we're all women and we're in this for all women, we're in this for all women. But that takes understanding the experiences of all women in order for us to really be in it together um, and help lift one another up. And I mean, in, in my estimation, you know, um, my group has really been benefit has has basically stood on the backs of your groups for a, a long time, and it's time for us now to take a knee and and help raise you up to where you deserve to be alongside all the rest of us. It's just it, it's been too it's been too long, but it's taken me a long time to get there within myself. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's an interesting point, because a lot of times when I'm doing equity work, I tell people that I start the conversation with anti-blackness, and I, I frequently get a lot of pushback. Well, what about women? What about women's issues? And I'm like, you know, the door through which we're going to walk to understand the paradigms of power at play, we, we have to start with race and racism in the United States, and we start with slavery. And then through that, we're able to understand how these things have been at play. But there's always a pushback. Um, generally from white women who just don't want to spend a lot of time talking about race. And yet, as you say, when we look at who are the largest beneficiaries of affirmative action, it has been white women. When we look at the civil rights movement and it's, and it's, it, and it gave birth to the feminist movement, very similarly, how the abolitionist movement, um, tracked the suff- suffragette tracked the abolitionist movement. Every advance that white women have had has been at as part of the fight against anti-blackness. And yet, if you talk to many white women, especially younger white women, they don't see themselves at all in that story. They don't see themselves connected to that story. How do we change that? I mean, I feel like as, you know, people of my generation, people in leadership, white women in leadership need to, you know, tell tell our own stories in terms of the ways we have done things wrong, the ways we have gotten it wrong, the history that we have not told um, and, and help to educate that next generation of leaders so that they are more understanding about the sacrifices that have been made, 
you know, at your expense for our benefit, essentially. Um, and so that that's not repeated because otherwise it's just going to happen over and over again because we, we are essentially brought up to be blind. We say we're colorblind. We're just blind period to that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To that, to the, to the full experience of America and what really the cost has been to get us in the position that, that we're in now. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something really interesting about education and it's something I've, I've always been, I was always curious about, but many years ago, about five years ago, when I moved to Portland, I was at some women's networking event and a young white woman said something to me to the effect of, it's not a direct quote, but you know, we really don't, you know, women are already uh, 50% of the workforce. So we're, you know, this, we don't really need any specific issue. There's no real problem anymore. And I was just blown away. I was like, whoa. Um, and what was interesting to me is that, you know, some groups communicate their history. So, you know, um, Judaism communicates a story of oppression of the Jewish people. Um, black people actually communicate a story of our oppression and understanding how, you know, the right to vote was given to us. White women have not communicated clearly to each other and especially to young women, like you say, that just a few years ago in the history of the world, like in the seventies, you couldn't rent your own apartment on your own. You know, people had to leave work. You could actually have your children taken in a domestic violence situation. Like I, I, I why is that communication not there with white women from generation to generation? You know, I don't know, except to say that it's, it may be part of the fabric of our being, um, still buying into, you know, that part of the patriarchy that we we don't want to own that. So I, I really don't know the answer to that question. I was just thinking while you were saying that about um, somebody saying they couldn't change their name on their credit card, even just a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. without their husband's signature on, you know, on the credit card when they, so, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what, that's a really good point. And I don't know why we as white women have not, you know, told our history, because I've, that's, you, you stumped me on that one, Sherry. Yeah, yeah. You know, because, <laughs> one for you know, to think about. Yeah, because it is such an in, important part, right? When I do my trainings and I, I talk to, you know, groups of people and I try to make that connection. And that's, again, why I started anti-Blackness and then I try to swing it around because I've heard some people say that, you know, um, misogyny and racism are twins, you know. They, they're, they, they, they are related to each other so closely, you know, that the, the power dynamics of oppression. And yet, as you say, having escape valve or access or perceived access to the patriarchy through whiteness is, is something some white women are trading, trading for their own kind of liberation. Um, the interesting thing to me is, is this then presents the problem, a central problem of discussing women's issues. I, I, for the last several years, I used to run an organization that focused on women's issues, have really strenuously pushed back on saying women's issues. Like it, because in doing that, just like your title, you are whitewashing women's issues. Would you, I mean, you know what I mean? Like when every time I'm in a space where people are doing that, they start talking about, well, women talk like this or women do like this. They're talking about white heterosexual normative ways. That's it. 
A hundred percent. And it's some of the conversations that I've been having in, in my group on race that comes up a lot. The, the white women in the group want to talk about, well, you know, men do this to us and blah, blah. It's like, but eh, those are not the same thing. And, and I have, you know, I have friends who have said that their older white bosses have come to them and said, oh, yes, I understand all this stuff that's going on about race. We all, we went through all that with, you know, as women way back when. It's like, it's not the same. It's not the same thing. And I feel like maybe that's part of the answer to your question is we want it to be gone. We want it to go away. So we like to say it's over. And then we, you know, I mean, it's a denial. White women are the queens of denial. I will say that. <laughs> we, you know, if we say it doesn't exist, then well, it doesn't exist. We don't have to believe it. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, that's interesting because that is another thing that I work through in my trainings, which is our different communication styles and the roads. Just like you said before, we're all women, but we walk all of these different roads to get to uh, femininity. If you're a black woman, Hispanic woman, trans woman, Asian woman, right? We, we walk different roads to get to this intersection. And it's, it's what happens along that road that really shapes how we communicate. And this is another common workplace clash between black women and white women. <coughs> black women, excuse me, black women have, you know, historically um, suffered from this concept of adultification, which mm-hmm. means that, you know, from the time you're a child, society, schools, institutions are dealing with you as an adult and you are um, judged by a different standard. And so white women conversely deal with a society that tends to infantilize them. That says, you know, if you don't want to deal with this, if you can get out of this speeding ticket by crying, you, you know, that's, that's going to work for you. And like I you like to tell people, if when an infantilization and adultification meet in the workplace, what could possibly go wrong except <laughs> literally everything? Literally exactly. everything. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and I think you just nailed it. I mean, that's that's the crux of the fragility that white women have. It's like we've been able to get away with it by just saying, I don't know, I can't handle it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and shutting people down by basically turning into children um, as opposed to putting on the big girl panties and and having taken it and having the conversation and getting real with people. You know, it's, I've, I've not thought about it like that. I've heard that before, but I've not really thought deep into it, but it's, it's so apparent in a lot of the conversations that are going on um, right now, how, you know, white women either want to divert the conversation to be about their experience being mistreated or want to just crumble and curl up and on the floor (laughs) and, and be taken care of essentially. And, and yeah. Well, and, and I think the one thing to remember for folks is that Black liberation work has led to the single greatest gains, not just for Black people, but for everybody in the system. So it's, you know, there's this, this feeling that, oh, we're talking about just these Black issues. And yet just these Black issues were the catalyst for the civil rights movement, which which moves women's rights, which moves immigrants' rights, which moves disability rights. All those movements are birthed out of that. Similarly to when we look at George Floyd's murder this past summer, from Amsterdam to Spain, people started asking, who do we value? So there's there's this assumption that discussions around race, speci- specifically if we focus on this American epic, uh, that is who's, who's who, who gets power, is narrow, when actually 
every time we do that, there is a gain, not just for Black people. Do you know, you see what I'm saying? I totally see what you're saying. I mean, we're all involved in a system and every move that we make across the system, and especially I think you make a really good point because I think it takes just an extreme uh, bit of action, I guess, in the Black community to really move the needle. And as soon as that needle moves, it moves for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so... It's that's that's a that's a fascinating uh, way to look at it. Yeah, and I I feel like part of it is we don't know our histories, we don't know our story as a country. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as a country, we're really invested in simplistic stories, and there is more than black and white, right? There's gray, and so you know, one of the things is you mentioned the the woman who you talked about in your workplace who left. This is this whole dynamic problem of supervision, evaluations, and promotions is, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people say, we don't have a pipeline. We don't have a pipeline of Black people, like the infamous statement from the CEO of Wells Fargo, who got his first job with Jamie Dimon because he had a relative who knew him, is going to talk about pipelines, but we'll set that aside. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, is it? A, I don't think it's a pipeline problem. I think there's a blockage problem, and the blockage is just what you've described. We know that Black women, in particular, are having getting more advanced degrees, uh, getting into workplace, and yet they're getting stalled out, and they continuously are having to leave, start their own businesses, like I am, and other things because they find the workplace so unbearably hostile, you know. And so, you know, how do we? How, I've thought about that when uh, an organization that is predominantly white brings on a person of color, especially a person in leadership, they need to do some work uh, either ahead of time or or in conjunction with it to get at the assumptions around who is a leader and also the quality of work. Because we know that we tend to do something called goal-based stereotyping, which is that we stereotype people and then we filter everything they do through the stereotype. So so example is the what you talked about with the young lady. I, I can tell you for a fact, I have said to people, good morning, how are you? And then people have said to other people, I'm so terrified of her. She's so threatening. I, I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, hello, good morning, you know, doesn't sound like that, but what they legitimately believe they heard that because they are filtering it through that stereotype. Does that make sense? Yes, it very much makes sense. And I agree that when, you know, our organization is, is going through that right now is really starting to have those conversations because we are primarily led by white people. And what does, what is that going to take for us to really see? And, and what does leadership look like then if it's more diverse? What does the, what, what will that do for the organization's voice? What will that do um, for everyone's experience in the organization? And what what expectations, like, like you said, what what are the expectations? Are they fair? Are they equitable? Uh, depend, regardless of race, gender, age, all of those things, because I I don't I don't understand that the, the idea that uh, that leadership looks a certain way. Mm-hmm. That to be a leader, you have to, you know, fit in this box. I think mm-hmm. there's so much to be gained from the wisdom of of everyone's experience from where they come from. 
that leadership should should embrace those differences, and I think we can all be better for it. But it's 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 going to take uh, it's a tall mountain to climb. I think. Yeah, I think it's um, you know leadership. Also, I think it's it's look and feel when we talk about leadership. I think people could tell you a million ways they felt with a white male boss. Oh, this guy is lazy. This guy is the. This guy is this. But leadership female leadership feels different to people and and they assume it's inferior the leadership of people of color feels different and they don't have any marker in which to say like oh yeah this is this is um, that this is that leadership type I have a whole historical catalog of what it means to be led by white people and white men do you see what I'm saying mm-hmm. and I don't have any marker about what it means to be led by a woman or a person of color and therefore I might be tripping wires that aren't there because I I don't know what that feels like. You know, a lot of people listening to this are going to say, okay, well, okay, so what do I do? You know, do you have any concrete suggestions that you would give um, to white women like yourself, to people who are in HR, to people who are managers, you know, what, you know, concrete uh, ideas uh, would you give to people to help navigate through this this um, thing that's happening? Yeah, so I mean, it's you know, it's it's messy. It's going to get messy. And to me, just like I did with this article, it always has to start with with yourself. It, you can't. I don't feel like you can look to change anything outside yourself until you really take a good hard look inside yourself. And so, what I've been doing is reading everything that I can possibly read. Um, in this discussion group, it has it's been a gift to me because we've I've been able to listen and hear the experiences of, of other people, and they've been able to listen and hear mine and share. So I would say if you can find a group within your community, within your workplace, um, of people who are interested in talking openly about these things um, in a non-judgmental, we set ground rules for this group um, in a non-judgmental way, and really be brave and explore it because it's going to take a tremendous amount of courage. This work, you know, does not come easy. And especially for those of us who have been protected um, for so long, just by virtue of our privilege, it's, you know, you've got to be willing to crack that facade and and get real. Um, To me, the conversations have been the most transformational, Um, just hearing hearing from other people's perspectives, talking to people that I work with and, and, and asking, not asking them to educate me about their, their experience, Mm -hmm. but asking their, their perspective on things just as an individual. I'm not looking for, you know, the one black way of doing things. I'm looking for in your experience as a professional in this area, what do you see in this and, and how, what value can you add to this? I mean, I'm not really answering your question. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I, no, you, you actually, you actually are because I, ironically, I, like I said, I do equity training for a variety of organizations and I always get people pushing back on me. They want the magic formula. They want to know if I go two steps to the left and two, three steps to the right, am I not racist anymore? And I'm like, it doesn't work like that. Like you, you do have to do the work, you know, 
white culture and American culture in general does not like to be uncomfortable. We'll Mm -hmm. do apparently anything not to be uncomfortable. (laughs) And understanding that people of color writ large, and by that I mean Black, Hispanic, Asian, people of color, we are uncomfortable all the time. We go into spaces where we're uncomfortable. So we're not... We're, we're not shocked we're Hispanic or Black or Asian. It's not like a surprise to us, you know? And so um, it's really getting over that uncomfortability. And I really appreciate you talked about educating yourself because at the end of the day, um, that is the key. Historically, there has been information that has been lacking and has not been shared. And what I like to tell people is, you know, you're not going to go out into the woods and start picking mushrooms and eating them without knowing how to identify what's poison and what's not. So then why do you think you're just going to start implementing racial work without doing the work so that you can have a handbook to identify what it is you're looking at? You know what I mean? That's right. Totally. And being uncomfortable is not going to kill you. You know, I mean, I think trying to stay comfortable might kill you. You know, at least it it will kill your uh, ability to grow and it will kill your ability to understand and it will kill your ability to move forward with this culture because we're we're moving. And those of us who are willing to be brave and to be uncomfortable, I'm willing to squirm as much as I need to squirm. I'm okay with somebody, you know, getting right in my face and telling me, hey here's the deal because otherwise I'm not going to learn anything. And so if we've got to be willing to have those conversations, we also have to be willing to accept that there are different experiences across the spectrum. There isn't, like you said, there is not one experience that you can just magically ingest as as a person, you know, and say, Oh, I understand. And now I can get along with all people. Every people are, People are people that everybody's different. Everybody has their own experience. We've had discussions in my uh, discussion group about, you know, do we say African American? Do we say black? I mean, even even the black mm-hmm. people in those groups yep. don't, uh, you know, don't they agree. don't agree. There's not, you know, we have to get over thinking that there's one right way to do it and be willing. You know, to me, I am an awkward white lady, and I'm going to admit that from the very beginning. And I'm just going to say, you know, if I say something stupid, you get into my face and tell me, and I'll. I'll learn, but I'm, you know, I'm going to try and learn first and not do that stupid thing. But if I do, I'm open to getting checked on it. Well, you know, it's funny too, because people do have this conversation. Well, I just can't say anything anymore. And, and I, I love to shift that and say, you're right. You can't say anything, anything. because people used to say anything to other people, hurtful things, sexist things, racist things. So no, and, and, Point of fact, you cannot say anything anymore. And the expectation that you should be able to say anything was never the proper expectation. And so trying to get us balanced back where we have uh, conversations that are respectful. And, you know, I always tell people about this identification issue. We can take a lot from our LGBTQIA brothers and sisters. Ask, is it going to kill you to ask people? How would you like to be identified? I mean, literally that takes seconds. And, and it's respectful. You know, yeah, it takes seconds. It's, it, I mean, if you say, oh, I don't know, what should I call you? That is kind of weird. But if you say <laughs> to somebody, you know, how would you like to be identified? No one's going to faint. You know, people say, oh, I prefer African-American. I, and, oh, I can't remember it all. I say, you know what? I may, I'm going to try to remember it. But if I don't, please let me know. Literally, it is as easy as that. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, being, being a human being and saying, I'm a human being, I'm going to make a mistake, but, and I, or I'm a human being and I don't know it all. Let's have a conversation about it. Absolutely. I think that's, 
you know, that's the way we learn. And if there's not a right way or a wrong way, there's a human way. And we're all going to be messy humans periodically. And, you know, I think embracing, not trying to be perfect. I think that's the other thing. Why mm. people get stuck in our rigidity. We think we, you know, we want to be validated for everything we do mm. um, and, and, and pat it on the head for, for every little tiny thing that we do. That's what's and the perfection. end game there. Right. Yeah, that's right. Perfection. That's perfection. Part of the culture, right? That's it's part it. of the culture that really requires a certain level of perfection, which is a tyranny, especially mm-hmm. to women, right? This constant search for perfection. And people of color are look at a world that is much messier because mm-hmm. they, they have to. You have to live in a space where you see the messiness in a different way. Well, Jill, this has been just so much fun chatting with you. And I think, you know, the balm. B-A-L-M podcast is really about this. You know, my feeling is that if we're going to put some salve on the wounds that are still existing for us, we have to have conversation. We have to dig in. We have to clean it out. We have to, you know, try to get the infection out and see how we can heal better. And so I really appreciate you being a part of this conversation today. Oh, it has been my pleasure and my honor. And just one last thing, I thought of something, mm-hmm. that, uh, one more concrete thing that people can do. Start to yeah. listen to yourself. Listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth. <laughs> and, and, and really, I mean, not just, li- but really here, what did I say? Did I just say something that, and, and don't be afraid to walk it back and say, you know what? I just heard that. And what the heck did I just say? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I call it, you have to, we're trying to outsmart the machine. There you we're, go. The, we're the machine. We have been programmed with a bunch of biases and stereotypes, and we have to try to step outside and see how we can outsmart the machine. And part of that is interrogating ourselves, mm-hmm. asking ourselves, you know, really hard questions and coming up with maybe some protocols to say, wait a minute, why did I think that? Did that person say good morning in a mean way, or am I fearful of them just for reasons I'm not sure? Right. Rather than then going around the office saying, oh, this person is is a terror. And literally the person is like, I didn't terrorize, you know, using also how we how you use language. Right. Because sometimes how you use language can be so destructive. If, you know, a white woman in particular says they feel threatened and we've seen mm. this with Central Park Amy and blah, 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 that language about threatening is so charged. And it has such severe consequences for people of color that you really have to ask yourself, is it that I feel, I always tell people there's a difference between being made uncomfortable and just feeling uncomfortable. You know, you have to interrogate yourself. Did, did, was I threatened or do I just feel that way because I don't feel comfortable hearing something? And the moment you let those words out, all the power in history come with those words, you know? Yeah, for sure. Words matter. And listen to the words that you use mm-hmm. in your head and that come out your mouth. Oh, I like that. Because there's some hiding in your head. too. Oh, yeah. there's a lot in your head. The first the first thought you have is always, sometimes it's like, oh, that doesn't need to come out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let me let me look at that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Jill. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, listeners of The Balm, for uh, participating, listening, being a part of this conversation today. And tune in next time for more conversation geared toward racial reconciliation. Remember, the arc of the moral universe does in fact bend toward justice, but it only bends if each and every one of us pulls together.
See you next time.